You know, today we're going to talk about finance matters. And finance is one of those things that you come to church, you think, oh no, we're going to hear about finances in the church and what that looks like. Well, we believe that's really important for families. And we want to, I want to approach this today from the importance of what it means for your family, okay? What it means to be able to understand finances from a biblical perspective and teach that to our children, to our grandchildren, to those around us, to our spouse. Because one of the things we know is that one of the great conflicts in families, one of the great tension points in families often centers around finances and what we're doing with it and how we're spending it and what it looks like. That's a great tension point, not just from what we hear among families, but just the research has been done from that. So that, that is very important. And the Bible speaks a lot to that from a family perspective. It comes at it from, from that perspective of us teaching and what that looks like. So today, the teaching, really, I know that, that many in our group are followers of Christ and we teach this from a discipleship perspective. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ. We hope that you'll hear God's message today, that the Spirit will speak into your life, that you will hear His, as we have worshiped together already, what it means to experience His love and His goodness and His grace. And through the Bible lesson that we'll be talking about this morning, you'll see God's great provision into our lives. So teaching is very important, and how we see things is very important. I grew up on a farm in eastern Kentucky. When I was a little kid, we got our milk from the cow. Okay, my uncle had the, the dairy cows and we'd go to his place and we'd take the gallon jug and we would fill it up with milk and that's what we would drink from. Mom would scoop off the cream when we got, got it out every day. Some of you may have grown up that way. And so I knew early on from my earliest moment that where milk came from. Elizabeth, my wife, grew up on Long Island. Her parents were from Georgia, but she tells a story about her first time to go to the Aggie school to see a real cow right? So a different from perspective is what we came from in our, in our backgrounds. And so a lot of people might think, okay, where does milk come from? What do your kids think? Do they come from the gallon jug in the refrigerator? Or it comes from the grocery store? Or do they know where it comes from really? But we have to teach that. That's something that we have to teach. So it's true with finances. We have to teach how God wants us to understand the biblical pattern for our families and the finances that come as a part of that. The first thing I want us to look at today, and if you have a listening guide, you can fill in the blanks that we have, just a few of those today. But the first thing I want us to see is God has designed us to work. That's the very first thing that we understand. God has designed us to work. Whatever that is in your family, whatever is in your life. Now, sometimes we think about the Bible teaching us that it was after Adam and Eve sinned and the fall of man that the Bible said you have to work. Well, actually, that's not the case. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 2, the very verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, I'll just, I'll just read that to you. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The first understanding we have of work comes before the fall, that the purpose of man was to work the garden. And, and you can try to come up with some Hebrew word of what that means, but it means to work, literally to get out there and do the work of taking care of the garden. Now we do understand that over in chapter three of Genesis, after the fall, uh, God spoke into Adam's life and work became more toil. It was more heartache inside that. God had work meant for it to be a great time, a great enjoyment, and God had designed it that way. But for the fall of man, we have to go and work, and sometimes it's toil and it's labor in a different word that's used. 
You know, in the little story about seven, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you, you might remember that story. Those little guys went off to work in the mine every day, right? They were singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. I don't know how many people get up singing that song every day to you. You know, I, I don't know if we really think in terms of, man, I'm excited about going to work and I'm excited about what's going on. Yet, the Bible says that the first thing we have to understand is our foundation is the work that we're about, the work that has to happen. In Thessalonians, the second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this about work. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work and to earn their own living. So we see the foundational part of our lives is to be people who are at work. That's just a given understanding for all people, especially for disciples of Christ. We need to be the kind of people who are at work doing things for God and what he has done as unto him. The second thing I want us to see this morning is God provides us our provisions and God demands stewardship. Now that's an interesting word that I've chosen there because I did choose the word demands very intentionally. That understanding that God has provided everything that we have. There is no, it goes back to the story of where the milk came from, right? It comes from the cow, not from the jug in the refrigerator, yet it comes from the jug in the refrigerator. But most of the time, we think of our finances as something we have achieved by what we have done. We have gained all that we have because of our hard work or how we have saved well, and those are important things, no question about that. But the understanding that the Bible says that God is the provider of all things. You have nothing that God has not allowed you to have. You have nothing that God has not provided you to health to work. You have nothing that God has not given you an understanding of the provision that he has given into our lives. Now, that is just a biblical principle for us who are followers of Christ. If we're a Christ follower, we would say that we understand that we have nothing that God did not give to us, that God did not let us have. Now, sometimes we get that twisted and we think it's ours, we think we own it, and, and we understand sometimes the concept of ownership, that we might own the house that we are purchasing, but the reality is that we do not have the health or the wherewithal or anything if God does not provide those things. So we get the basic principle of God's provision. So if God provides for us, then stewardship is demanded of us. As a follower of Christ, whether you're a steward of what God has given you, it's not a question of I can or cannot do that. We're a steward of how we raise our children. We're a steward of how we raise our grandchildren. We're a steward of how we use our resources. All those things are something that's on us as our responsibility as followers of Christ. We can't put that on someone else. We can't say we don't want to do that. It is on us as followers of Christ. So let's go a little deeper in this understanding of what it means to be stewards. The Bible tells us at least three ways that we ought to be stewards of all that God has given us. And you can write these verses down. I won't take all the time to read all of them. The first one is the understanding of the tithe. 
The tithe, according to the Old Testament, from Malachi 3, verse 1 through 12, specifically focused on verse 8, is an understanding that we are, are to give out of our resources 10% of all that God has given us. The Bible clearly teaches from both the Old Testament and some understanding of the New Testament, though some would say the understanding in the New Testament isn't that God requires 10%. In quite honesty, in the New Testament, God requires 100%. Everything that we get, we give unto him. But that's kind of a different message. We won't go there this morning. But Malachi tells us that 10% belongs to the house of the Lord. Now, the Bible would say, and I'm just saying to us as followers of Christ, it's not something we get to choose to do or not to do because it's a demand of being stewards. Now, if that be the case, what motivates us to give that 10%? Well, what motivates us to do that is our obedience to Christ. It's not the church's need or the pastor preaching about it. None of those things should motivate us to give. What motivates us to give our tithe is the fact that we're going to be obedient and do what God has told us to do. And then, as we are obedient to that, the Bible says in Malachi that God does two things. When we're obedient, the first thing that he does is he opens the window of heaven for his blessings. Now, he's not talking about financial blessings when you read that passage. He's not saying that the more you give the more God's going to give you finances back as some might preach and teach. That is not what he tells us. What he tells us, he's opening the blessings of life, the blessings of, of joy and peace and understanding who he is. Those things come out of the fact that as we give out of obedience, God opens the windows of blessings into our life. The second thing that he teaches us that he does is not only does he open this window of blessing, but he protects, get this, he protects, protects his provision. So there are things in our lives that God has provided, and as we are obedient to return to him, God protects our provisions. Now that in itself can cause some heartaches and frustrations some questioning sometimes. Uh, I remember just that whole idea of the first time I actually walked through that, it was with a friend of mine who uh, obviously had not been giving and he ran over some nails in his car. It was college, and he had two flat tires, right? And his response was, well, that's on me. I wasn't obedient to what God gave me, and so God did not protect me. Now, that's a, that's a thing we have to pray through and understand, but the Bible does teach us that if we're not obedient in doing as he has asked, then he has no responsibility to protect the provisions <clears throat> that he has given to us. So that's tithing, which comes out of obedience, is given to the church, and God supplies blessings and protection. The second thing we look at from the Bible is the understanding of first fruits. <clears throat> first fruits is an understanding that we give unto the Lord. Now I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, he helps us to understand that when he says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Right? So tithing is giving out of what he has given us. First fruits is giving out of the increase of what God gives you. So if God gives you increase, the idea from God's word is we give out of increase, not from the motivation of obedience now, but a motivation of generosity. If God is generous to us by giving us an increase, then we're generous to ministry or to mission or to the church 
out of the generosity that motivates us to say, God has given more than I need, and so therefore I give back to him more than I have to kind of deal, more than I do from a tithe, but I'm giving from my first fruits. There's a difference between those from a biblical principle. So we're giving our tithe out of obedience. We're giving our first fruits out of our increase, out of generosity. And then the third one is alms or offering. The Bible teaches much about us giving and the motivator for us giving to others who are in need is out of compassion. So our hearts of compassion, we see someone in need and we respond by giving to those who are in need. So the Bible would teach us clearly that we are stewards of all the things that he has given to us. We are stewards in the fact that he has provided us with all things. So therefore, the Old Testament would help us to understand tithing and our motivation is obedience. First fruits given out of our increase of all that God has given unto us. And so we provide that as a way of being generous in our motivation. And then, of course, an offering, an alms to say, here is a person in need. How can I help meet that need? Now, obviously, those three things happen when we begin to understand that the focus is not on us, but it's on what God has provided and who he is in our lives. So I ask you now to turn to our scripture for the day. I'm sorry it's taking me so long to get here, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you have a Bible with you or a phone or an iPad or right there in the pew in front of you is a Bible. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament toward the back of the Bible. And you'll find 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. Paul is writing to the church and he's trying to help them to understand the collection that he has been asking for. He's trying to help us as believers to put down some principles of what it means in order to give, in order to understand, as I have mentioned, the third thing here, the understanding that as followers of Jesus, our heart should be focused on giving and thanksgiving. And that's what Paul leads us to in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He leads our hearts to be turned toward him in such a way that giving and thanksgiving are a natural response of who we are in Christ. It's a natural response of how we see his love for us. It's a natural response of recognizing that Christ died on the cross to pay our sin, to pay, pay the one who, who's the one who paid the debt. Our wages of sin, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God. But the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross so that that sin may be paid for. There had to be some penalty, some payment for our sin, and the Bible teaches that Christ became that payment for us. Now, it also teaches that after being in the grave three days, he rose from the dead so that we might understand that we have conquered death for eternity, that eternity is ours. Now, Paul, giving us believers some understanding of that through Corinthians, gets to this understanding here in chapter 9 of the church and how the church is going to give. Matter of fact, if you found that in chapter 9, in verse 6, he talks about being the children cheerful giver. Let's look at this passage together. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, that's a pretty easy thing to understand, right? The more you sow, the more you get in return. 
Then he goes on in verse seven to say, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctant or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, the first thing I want us to see in those blanks on the listening guide is God's love. Because out of this passage, one of the things we begin to understand is God's love for us. Now, this is really a kind of interesting passage because in many places in the Bible, when it talks about God's love, it talks about the fullness of God's love, God's gape love, God's love that means that it's unconditional, that's his grace, it's an unmerited kind of love. There's nothing that we have to do to gain God's love. We can't be good enough to gain God's love. We can't, be, we can't do enough good things in order to gain God's love. God loves us, period. Okay, we understand from a covenant understanding of God's great love for us. He died on the cross by sending Jesus Christ because of his love. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's that kind of love. Yet here in this passage, he says God loves a cheerful giver. It does use a different kind of understanding. It's, it's as if that God, we're responding to God, and, and the more we respond to God, it's as if he's got a warmth for us, a love for us. And you know what that's like with your children or grandchildren. The more they, they come to you and they give you those hugs, the more you, you have this warmth for them and you want to hug them. That's the kind of idea that he has here. God has that kind of desire for us. Though he loves us and his salvation is free to us, but as we are turning our hearts toward giving, then God's loving us in a fresh new way and we sense the freshness of his love. Then we go on to the next verse, verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now that's the second blank that you want to fill in is the word grace. God's Grace, And he tells us here in this verse, and it's in, in this understanding of giving, God is able to make all grace given to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What has he just said? God's provision is everything that you need, everything that God has for you, God is supplying for you. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let's go on to the third thing, which is God's supply in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So let's just talk, stop and talk about that for a moment. So in this, we understand God's provision. We understand that our responsibility is stewardship. We understand from this passage that God's love and God's grace and God's supply is connected. Why then do we have so much problem in our family with finances? What happens with the conflict between husband and wife? What happens in the conflict between family, parents, kids, what happens in the conflict when we want things that we don't have the money for and all those things that goes around with the conflict that deals with finances in our family? So let's just nail this down. What does it come from? It comes, first of all, from worry in our lives. Many people, most people, maybe you, when you go to bed at night, when you get up in the morning, when you deal with things, you're thinking about, oh, I don't have any money. I can't do this. I can't afford to do this, or I can't provide this, or I can't do this. And so, so much of our anxiety 
not just in the church, but so much just by research and, and people that we talk to also, so much anxiety, so much worry comes out of this financial issue that we're talking about today. We haven't trained ourselves, we haven't trained our children that the provision of all we have comes from God. And so we struggle because we begin to worry about it. We have fights over it with husbands and wives. We struggle with it within our family and worry becomes, takes over the financial need. Now, where does the worry come from? Well, I think the worry comes from the understanding that we want things. It's a, it's a wanting thing. I wish, I want, whatever, whatever word you were, use, wishing or wanting, I want to have this. I want to have a, a different car. I want to have a bigger house. I, I want this. I want this. I want this. And so we go through life with a consumer understanding because we want stuff, right? And if we want this and we decide to purchase it, then what happens? Well, we don't have enough money to pay for it. And then the conflict comes in and we begin to worry. And our children and our grandchildren begin to see that, right? We worry about uh, retirement. You're getting ready to retire. We're going to have enough in order to make retirement when the Bible doesn't even say that retirement is a biblical concept. It shouldn't be something that we say we put all of our energy and focus into. Not that it's wrong. I don't mean to say that at all. But, but when we have that as the worrying process, we've missed what God is doing. When we have the worry process over things we want over what God has already provided, then we, we've, we've missed it. So you've got the worry problem that happens because we're wanting stuff and we're not willing to wait for it. We're not willing to wait. We, we live in such a, a microwave world, right? I mean, man, if I want to heat up something, I just throw in the microwave and instantly, five seconds later, it's done or 10 seconds later or a minute and a half, I, I got popcorn in two minutes. What an amazing thing, right? It's an instant, and we think about that in everything about our life and we want this thing and so what do we do? We don't save for it. We don't wait for it because we need it instantaneously. What does that do? It causes conflict. It causes us to worry and it causes us to have anxiety. It causes us to have conflict in their family. You see how those go together? And all the, all the biblical principle is, no, wait. God is supplier of all things that you need, and God has supplied you with these things. And so our biblical response is, Lord, I'm, I'm tithing out of obedience. I, I'm giving generously. Well, let's, let's finish up by looking at this last one. God's ultimate provision is in verse 12 through 15. God, Paul has told them that they have all these things, and then Paul gets the ultimate, right? For the ministry, I'm reading from verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Believers, have first and foremost that ultimate provision of Christ, who he is, what he has done for you in salvation. So because of that, that confession of the gospel, all that we're doing is coming out of the fact that we are in Christ in verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God. Look at verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift to you. Now he's changed. Now he's changed. He says, God has supplied everything that you need, but his greatest inexpressible gift is the grace found in the gospel of Jesus. It is salvation that you can have in Christ. 
It is the understanding that it's not about this world, it's about eternity. It's not about what we might gain and get for 60 or 70 or 80 years, it's the understanding that we have all eternity with God. Everything we ever can imagine is with Christ, salvation and in him, the understanding that he forgives our sin and cleanses us and makes us righteous, not out of anything we do, but out of the fact that he has died on the cross, rose from the dead. That's the gift that he's talking about. That's what he has supplied most for us is a salvation that we find in Christ. And once we have that gift, once we understand the gift of salvation and understand that God's greatest provision is eternal life, it should put everything else in the priority for us. It should change the way we think about our resources, what we have, the conflicts, the wanting, the waiting, the worry. It should change all those things. If we can get to verse 15 that says, the greatest gift that he has given to you is the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. 